Just a word of warning for today's episode of Glam City, there will be some strong language. Welcome to Glam City, listeners. I'm Tamsin Peach. And I'm Anna Clark, and you are listening to Glam City. Glam stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums, that tricky little acronym that tells you the sort of what's on, what's on for history in our backyard in Sydney. And today we are welcoming to the studio Mandy Sayer. Hello, Mandy. Hi, Tamsin. Hi. We've been very uh, excited about your new book, Australian Gypsies, Their Secret History. Uh, So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, we're sort of going back in time to discover a very hidden history in Australia's past, really, which surprises me. We're both historians. We feel like we know our stuff, but I didn't know anything about this Neither story. did I. That's why it was such a, a great book to write. Uh, yeah. the, these amazing discoveries that uh, and connections that I, I was able to make between Aboriginal people and, and Romney Gypsies, for example. And, and so it, there are very few uh, new stories in the world, but this is one of them. <laughs> Mandy is a street performer turned writer. Uh, she's both an award-winning novelist and non-fiction author, including the award-winning memoir Dreamtime Alice and The Poet's Wife. And her latest book on, out on the shelf as we just said, is Australian Gypsies, Their Secret History. Mandy, to write the book, travelled all around Australia researching this hidden history, gathering stories, oral histories, uh, archives from gypsy families, because, of course, many of them wouldn't be in public archives, I'm guessing. No, they aren't, no. And to tell this incredible story of Romani people's lives in Australia that have remained basically undocumented within Australia's official history. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, How did you come across this story? Uh, in 2015, uh, I was in uh, Budapest because my husband was writing a screenplay for a Hungarian gangster. As you do. As you do. <laughs> and we, we had a fair bit of free time. Um, my, my husband was actually grifting the gangster. He, he writes very quickly, but told him he writes very slowly. So we spent a lot of time socialising and listening to music and jazz. And we went up to a concert in Eger, which is out in the country, two hours outside of Budapest, to a jazz concert. Afterwards, we went backstage and met the band and had a great time with them. They invited us out to dinner. And uh, over dinner, I, I got on really well with, with a pianist who was a very large, dark-skinned man with a fabulous sense of humour. And uh, so much so that he invited me and my husband around for dinner once we got back to Budapest and he was going to cook for us and play his music. Uh, His brother, the drummer, was also there. And uh, then he turned to me and said, I'm a gypsy. And I I was astonished because my my references about gypsies were always from... um, children's books, really, and, and uh, media uh, created by people who were not gypsies. So I was only aware of the stereotypes from Enel Blyton and Wind in the Willows and Charles Dickens, you know, with a pretty little caravan and, and the violins. Uh, the man before me, Joseph, uh, did not correspond with my image of a gypsy at all. Uh, he was very dark-skinned, uh, magnanimous, and uh, extremely generous. So... Uh, after we left Eger, we got on the train to go back to Budapest and I saw a shanty town along the side of the road, uh, the railway road. And uh, people, this community was living in cardboard boxes un- underneath corrugated iron. Uh, the kids were barefoot, almost naked. They looked like they were starving. And I turned and said to my husband, my God, what is that? And he said, that's a gypsy camp. And I couldn't believe that the people of my new best friend uh, were being forced to live in such mm-hmm. a way and in, in, in contemporary times. It, it shocked me so much that uh, when I returned to Australia, I began researching the true history of the Romani people. 
who were exiled from India between the 11th and 13th centuries. Uh, and so that was my first connection with a gypsy or Romani gypsy. And he was such a good example, a great example and a, and a great uh, icon of his people that uh, he, he, it was wonderful to, to meet him. And he was the one who really kicked off my deep interest in their culture. So how did you get from Hungary to Australia? I mean, you came back and you were looking at the kind of history and origins. Yes. And what made you think, well, what's the story here? Well, uh, I started obviously reading a lot of books on Australian history and there's no mention of Romani gypsies in in any of... There's only four books where they were mentioned very, very briefly in the context of a much larger subject. So uh, I found out that James Squire, for example... uh, was on, who was on the first fleet, Australia's first beer brewer. He was a Romani gypsy. And I thought, how, how, how? How did I find out? Uh, well, through through newspaper reports, through Trove, and also he, his mother was part of what was called the Canning Affair. And uh, it, it proved she, he was a Romani gypsy because she was persecuted in court in England. Um, and she, she was... Uh, absolutely innocent of, of the crime that she was accused of and was eventually let off, but it was a huge controversy in England at the time. So I, I found out that. I began asking around my friends, do you, do you know of any gypsies in Australia? And, and my husband said that there used to be a gypsy camp in La Perouse in the 1950s. Another friend said her aunt remembers them knocking on the door um, at Manly uh, and offering to tell fortunes for a few pennies. And uh, then a, a good friend of mine who lives down the road from the pub where I drink in Woolloomooloo brought up a newspaper clippings which stated that the Prince of the Gypsies, Costa Stereo, died in his house in 1943. Once I saw that newspaper report, I knew I had a story, that there was a big, big story here that no one had really unraveled. Uh, so that's when I hit Trove, uh, which is search engine, and I found... Um, reports of gypsies dating right back to the Second Fleet uh, in newspaper reports. So uh, that that sort of set me off as well. I knew that I didn't just want to write about the chronological history of Romney in, in Australia. I, I also realised that I, I, I wanted it, I didn't want it to be a museum piece. I wanted to also find out and represent uh, the Romani experience in Australia today. Mm. So there are about eight or nine profiles of uh, Romani families from all around Australia, from individuals to families. It's a very, um, it is a very living history in the book and the photos that you show are both historical but also very contemporary and it gives you a real sense of this kind of culture from all over the world that is essentially gypsy culture. It's amazing. And I, I, why hasn't these history been told before now, do you think? I, well, it's not entirely the fault of Australian scholars and, and academics. Uh, <laughs> they have lived in in secret deliberately for you know since the first fleet. Uh, one reason why is because they've been escaping persecution in Europe. Uh, in in the fifteen hundreds and sixteen hundreds, it, it was illegal to be a gypsy. You could be murdered for being a gypsy. You could also be uh, hung for selling any food to a gypsy. So. That's why the stereotypes of the, the thefts and stealing came up. They, they had to steal mm-hmm. a chicken or a watermelon or a pumpkin to, to feed their kids because uh, they couldn't buy any. Also, during the World War II, uh, 1.5 million Romani gypsies were exterminated 
Uh, they were targeted. That was the second ethnic group that was targeted. So, and that wasn't that long ago, mm. okay? It's only 60 years ago or 70 years ago. So when they come here, they, they just uh, announce their the country of origin, not their ethnic identity. So they'll just say they're Hungarian mm. or they're German or they're Albanian or they're Macedonian. And they don't put their ethnic identity on uh, census forms either. They're just still very scared. The other problem is, is that, even today, uh, they don't announce to an outsider that they're a gypsy because inevitably the stereotypes come up immediately. They, the, medi- the first thing they'll do is say, oh, I think I've got a bit of gypsy blood in my family. And I've witnessed that so many times when I've been socialising with my f- gypsy friends with outsiders. And um, they don't realise how disrespectful that is. That's like saying, oh, I think I've got a little drop of Aboriginal blood in me. Uh, it's so condescending and patronising. The second thing that will happen is that the, the palm will immediately go out and they'll want their fortune told. And, and, and that's a bit disrespectful too. Uh, so it, it's a hassle dealing with outsiders because they don't really know the, the, the truth of the gypsy culture uh, and history uh, and so they'd rather not deal with it. So <laughs> the only reason I, I was able to uh, enter, that, enter that community is because I was aware of all, all this before I began a conversation with them. Yeah. So it must have been quite important to get the consent of the community. Oh, that was very important. Yeah, when I would contact them, uh, the first thing I would say is, look, I know a lot of bullshit's been written about you people by people like me. <laughs> And I want to correct that. The second thing is um, I offered them anonymity if they wished to have it. Uh, eventually, none of them chose to do that. And the third uh, thing I offered was whatever I wrote about them in a chapter, they would get to read and edit. And even if what they said was on the record, if they wanted to take it off the record, that was certainly a choice that they, they would always have. So every everybody got to be in charge of their own story, which was very important to me because it, it's so e- easy to misrepresent their mm. culture. So mm. there's been you know, many decades and even centuries of um, gypsies sort of withholding their stories and keeping them mm. um, so that they're not exploited. Yes. Uh, and yet, and that the trust that they put in you to tell their story. So there's also a desire to get it out there a little bit. I'd say so, yes. Uh, one man I've become very close to, uh, he's... The only surviving grandson of the Queen of the Gypsies, Mary Stereo, uh, she and her her relatives arrived in Adelaide in 1898 as refugees. Uh, they were very much persecuted by the Australian press for 50 years. The, the press just hounded them, wrote lies about them, said that they were, oh, all kinds of things, practising black magic, all, all kinds of rubbish was printed about them. So he said to me, look, you can write anything about us you, you like, as long as it's not bullshit. You know, don't lie. Even if it's the truth and it's bad and it reflects badly on us, I don't care as long as it's not a lie. Mm. And I said, well, I wouldn't be sitting here if I wanted to make up stuff. You know? mm. yeah. So, um, yeah, they, they are very happy, uh, I think. And uh, some, some weren't aware of where their families had come from and I was able to help them with that. Because it's an oral tradition, of course, uh, some of the stories got lost along the way. Um, and so it's it's also about connecting the different communities as well because they they are quite disparate and, and disconnected 
because they come from so many different places. So that was the re- one of the really striking things reading about this is how multicultural the yes. gypsy community is. Yes, very and, much so. Yeah, you know, in your book, you're showing people from Greece and from Hungary and from the UK. It's an extraordinary. Yeah, you've got kind Muslims, of... you've got born again Christians, and everything in between. Yeah. What uh, drew you to the subject? You talk a little bit in the introduction about your own background Mm. as a daughter of a musician and your childhood sort of travelling a lot Mm. in the US and so on and I guess part of that kind of show um, movement. And also living day to day, very much so. I thought that was probably why I had an affinity with the subject when I began. However, when I finished the book and I read through it maybe for the last time, I realised it wasn't that at all. I I was actually, because I I come from a very dysfunctional and fractured family um, and and both my parents had died by the time I I went to Hungary. Uh, My mother had only died three weeks before I went to Hungary. So after reading it and, and and looking at all the friendships that I'd developed around the country with the community, uh, I realised I was actually looking for a sense of family and a sense of community that wasn't really in my own life. Um, and it means a lot to me that they are so unswervingly loyal to one another. And even, for for example, when I would ring, ring somebody up, a stranger up, and they're talking to me as a stranger and I explain what I'm doing and they invite me down and they say, most of them would say, oh, no, don't go stay in a hotel. You come and stay with us. We'll pick you up at the airport. All that, uh, the generosity and, and, and the welcome was really moving mm. to me. And, and all, another reason why I think I was attracted to the culture is being a, a freelance writer all my life and before that being a, a street performer, um, I've always lived off my wits as they have. And they know, never know when their next job is coming and neither do I as a freelance writer. You know, my, my finances go up and down all the time. And, you know, at the age of 54... I start to wonder, oh God, can I keep this up for an, you know until I'm 70 or whatever? But through their example, I realise they can. They, they have it a lot tougher than I do, and and they're all happy. <laughs> and do you think that desire to um, you know bring you in and help you tell their stories shows that there's a, a sort of an opportunity or a, it's the timing is right to make it more public now for a history that's been so kind of secretive and hidden yes. for so long? Well, they're the ones who have decided whether that's going to be made public or not. Out of, I probably approached about 50 people and I think only three declined. So that's a pretty good average in, in the sense that they're just tired of lies being told about them. I think that's more it than right. anything and, and it's refreshing that, that, that they have an opportunity. They find it refreshing they have an opportunity to tell the truth. So potentially um, your book changes a lot for them in terms of how they're understood in the public. Does it change how we think of Australian history as a consequence? Well, I'd have to ask you, I guess. You're the historians, not me. What do you think? I don't know. Histories of Hidden histories sometimes can add to the historical rec- record. They tell us things that we didn't know. You know, there's 50% of the population are women. Like, let's yes. add them back into the story. But when you do that, sometimes a big shift happens because it changes how we've thought about the past. You, yes. know? you have new actors um, contributing to the processes that we thought you know, yes. were governed by other people. And I, um, I haven't actually read your book yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing if we can do that with, with this. Yes. Yeah. You know, I hope that, that this can be a springboard for opportunities for the Romani to take over and tell their own stories, publish their own books. 
and 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 feel free to contradict mm. me. Uh, but uh, also yeah. joining a kind of a public conversation for a community which has essentially been kind of fringe dwellers, yeah. uh, yes. and a lot of the photos in your book really show that they literally are fringe dwellers in Australian society and. And up until now, fringe dwellers in the Australian historical narrative. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, actually, speaking of fringe dwellers, like um, Aboriginal communities around Australia, what there seem to be quite a lot of overlaps. Absolutely, there 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 still are a lot of overlaps. In fact, uh, James Squire befriended the Indigenous leader Benelong, uh, and um, actually saved Governor Phillips' life in Manly. Uh, uh, Benelong had escaped from the, the camp here uh, and uh, went back to Manly. And Governor Phillip chose a guy called Aaron Davis and James Squire to accompany him to Manly to encourage Benelong to return to the camp. When they arrived, Governor Phillip was speared in the leg. Aaron Davis dropped his gun and pissed off and freaked out and ran away while Squire went up to the Aboriginal people and negotiated with them, went back to Governor Phillip, negotiated with him, uh, so much so that the Aboriginal people decided uh, that they, they wouldn't be violent anymore and Benelong happily accompanied Governor Phillip and Squire back to the camp. So he had very good negotiating skills. Benelong and Squire became such good friends that Benelong moved on to the land that Squire had been granted and um, eventually Squire buried Benelong on his land uh, up on a hill, uh, Orange Grove overlooking Parramatta River. So that's one, the first connection. The second one was Henry Lavelle, who was also on the First Fleet, married uh, uh, an Aboriginal woman, had a child, and then when he was able to travel back to England, took her and the child with him. They rejoined his uh, gypsy group back in England. So we've got an Aboriginal woman and child travelling around with a, a gypsy group for many years. They had a second do- a daughter called Sappy, and when she was 16, <clears throat> she was pregnant. And because she was pregnant, she stole a silver spoon. And for that, she was incarcerated for a year and transported to Australia. So she had to go back to the the homeland she'd never been before, and it was you know it experienced exactly the same problems that her father had initially. Uh, and when she was finally released, she married a, a, another gypsy man and, and had children. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, there that, and also the, the uh, Aboriginal people helped the gypsies adapt to the Australian landscape and bush, taught them how to harvest honey, how to make toys out of wax, how to find water. All, the, all those things. They're also both nomadic. They don't hoard food. They're very tight kinship connections. They have a lot in common and, and a common ancestry in India. Listeners, you're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app. It's in iTunes as well. And look for Glam City. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. In your book, you use these three strands that you describe. It's a, very, it's a historical strand, which sort of cr- mm. is a chronology of the history of gypsies in Australia. Um, some information, cultural information about their traditions, which to me was just, I mean, I didn't know anything about, about this at all. And also some beautiful profiles of gypsies, which shows that it's, you know, this is a living history and yes. it's not some sort of time capsule that's locked in 
you know, yes. um, James Squireland in, yes, in exactly. the 1780s or whatever. Yes. What was the motivation for writing it this way and how did it inform the way um, you went about the research and oh, telling the okay. story? Well, even before I began researching the book, I, I knew that I would have to have living subjects. I also realised that no, nobody really knows what gypsy customs, true gypsy customs and traditions are. So I, I, I knew what, that I would have to have those three strands. However, having said that, I, I stole the concept from my husband, Louis Naura, who had just published a, a book on King's Cross, a biography of King's Cross, and he was the one who developed the three-strand structure. So basically, I appropriated it from him, and it worked really well. Thanks, and, Louis. And people have <laughs> people have come up to to him and said, "You two, have you copyrighted that three strand structure? Because it really works, and it works in contemporary times because people have such a short uh, attention span." Yeah. Um, I found with the historical sections, they were much longer, and I, I often had to cut them in half, uh, so to, just to keep the momentum going. And it, it rollicks along that way. Uh, and also you can dip into any part of it and, and mm. still get something out of any short chapter. How does that writing the contemporary um, life stories contrast with doing the research about the historical characters? Did you feel like there were lots of connections between them or did you feel like you were writing quite different gypsy Oh, no, 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 no. I, I was determined to find the descendants of the Stereo family, for example, because I, I knew that they were still here in great numbers and I, I wanted to follow this, his, you know, join the historical story that ends in 1982 with the personal ones, which I'm able to pick up at the end and find out why uh, they were on the road for 80 years, why they ended up in jail so often, and, and their, the living conditions from their point of view. Uh, so I was able to track down four uh, descendants of, of that family who, who were profiled and... Um, that, that was really important to me to, to find that. And also I found the descendants of the uh, Macedonian gypsies who arrived in the 1960s. That's a very strong community now in Perth. There's 14,000 Romani gypsies living in Western Australia now. That's probably the most cohesive uh, community. Uh, so, so, no, I didn't really see that much difference between the two. Uh, having a background in profile writing for, for journalism, I, I didn't find that too taxing. I was a little worried whether I could pull off the history. I've, I've never written history before. I mean, I, I do have a doctorate in research and writing, but it's, you know, literary theory. It wasn't history. So I I was excited about that challenge. Mm. Uh, I, I, I was at a point in my life too where I felt like I wanted to do some serious study again. I, I, I missed uh, being an academic, basically. And so uh, I, really, I really enjoyed doing that. And you probably know being historians yourself, the story is so big. So you, it, like a fiction writer, you, you do have to choose certain events and certain stories that, that will amplify it or be an example so it can amplify into a bigger story. Because mm. there was just such a wealth of information on the stereo family itself, I could have written a whole book on them which I wouldn't mind doing one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some amazing pictures you've got in your book of the Stereo family yeah. and this one in particular of Ruby Stereo yes. Adams laid in state in her caravan on her death. Yes. Um, I'm just wondering if you could paint a, like, a word picture for our listeners of what's in that photograph. Well, it's an elderly woman laying on her back uh, on a bed in a caravan. It's a very ornate bedspread she's lying on. It, it looks like it's textured. She, she's got a shawl draped around her that's fringed. 
She's got a beautiful little cap on her head. Her arms are folded over her stomach. And uh, she's got a big, long Romany dress on, a gypsy dress on that, that goes down past her ankles. Uh, this is another reason why it was important for me to link the history with the living families now, because I, when I, I met some of the family members, I'd show them these photos that they'd never seen before. Wow. And this one, for example, I, I showed Nick Morgan. This. He said, that's my mother. This, this is, is a famous photo taken by Max de Payne in the 1930s in the Domain. It's called Gypsies in the Domain. It's a beautiful photograph. He said, that's my mother. So I, I sent him a, a copy of the photo framed because uh, he'd never seen it before. There's another one of Mary Stereo in 1907 that the family had never seen before. That's Nick Morgan's grandmother. And his parents? So those are her children? They're yep. her children, yes, yes, yes. And um, once I, I started showing them photos that I'd collected, like this one, which is uh, Ruby and Mary Stereo at the uh, funeral vigil held for Costa Stereo, uh, they started bringing out their own photos and sharing them with me. And so they, they shared quite a few as well, which was incredibly generous and, and trustworthy. Why was she known as the Queen of the Gypsies? What does that uh, mean? Every, every group, or, or Witzer or Nazia, uh, has a king and a queen. This is not really part of their culture. These are people nominated to be the head of the extended family. And these people negotiate with outsiders. They're, they're the ones who make the decisions. And um, it, it, it's really the, the hierarchy well, Traditionally, of the family. would they have been in control or decision makers about where to leave or when to leave yes. and where they would be going? Yes, and absolutely. Yes. And as you see, it can go for either gender. You can be a, king, a queen or a king. But um, the older you get, the, the more authority you have in the community and in the family. In fact, the highest status you can achieve is old age, which is why suicide is virtually uncommon in the culture because, you know, you, you're actually cutting off your own potential. To, to reach old age and and it, and and I love that also that the, the families un, unlike us Westerners who you know stick out our grandparents in in nursing homes uh, in Romani families the kids will actually have fights over who gets to inherit the grandparents to come and live with them they, they will argue over it because it's a great honor to look after the elders you talk in the book about how Gough Whitlam yes. changes a lot of Immigration policy, is that yes, right? What, yes. what changes in the 1970s? Well, he demolished the last of the white Australian policy and he opened up the doors in a way that they'd never been before. Uh, anyone could migrate here from Europe as long as they uh, decided to work for two years and then they could leave or whatever because we needed workers. So a lot of gypsies took advantage of this in the early 70s uh, because that you didn't even have to be highly skilled. And you didn't have to speak English. And so uh, uh, he actually changed the world for, for the gypsies and created this kind of haven. So, And most of, most of them, cho- well, all of them co- chose to come here and, li- again, live in secret. Because they were just so grateful to have this opportunity. They all agree that Australia really is a haven. We've never had... Uh, laws against gypsies in Australia specifically. We've never had the kind of, kinds of wars where uh, gypsies have been scapegoats. Um, the only problems we've really had is, is the ones that I suffer from, which is uh, the this reading of the stereotypes created by outsiders about them. But, uh, you know, I'm hoping this book will change people's points of view and, and educate them a little bit more.
Yeah, I mean, those stereotypes are imported as well in a way. Yes. Yeah. You're describing your colonial childhood yes. books. Actually, that, that, yeah. actually, yes, that's right. Yeah. And we all have that. And even movies like Carmen and, and even, you know, that, that stupid show called My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding. Um, it, it's still very patronising. You know, they're still portrayed as thieves and in and out of jail and extravagant and a little bit silly. Look, the gypsies here in Australia watch it and laugh because they know they're not like that at at all. Most of the people on that show are are travellers, which is a different ethnic group altogether. But because they do travel, I have to say, it's not in the gypsy blood to travel as well. A lot of people think that, oh, it's in the blood. It's not. It's just because laws were imposed upon them throughout all these countries. And so they had to keep on the move to to escape the authorities. It started off as a necessity, but but here in Australia now they they travel for, for pleasure. Uh, most uh, are settled. There are quite, you know, I, I know of several Romani gypsies who are still on the road, but most of them are settled. But will have a caravan in the driveway so they can go on a holiday and 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 be in nature and and keeping alive cultural traditions yes. rather than having been forced to yes. keep moving. Yes, that's right. And they still do meet in secret. Like every Christmas, there's about a hundred gypsy families will meet in a caravan park uh, and celebrate. But again, they don't advertise it. It's all word of mouth. Yeah. Uh, there aren't gypsy Facebook groups that are open that everyone can kind of keep a... No, there's coming. nothing like that. But, there are, you know, there are family groups. And, and so they, they... And I have to say, gypsies love the internet. It, you know, because bef- before mobile phones, they had to keep in touch with one of by public phones. And that was hit and miss because they're all on the road. Where the mobile phone came in, it changed their lives. So I could get work so much easier. They could keep in touch with one another... Facebook, they love Facebook because it's free. You know, they can keep in touch and post photos. It, it really has changed their lives. They can connect with uh, other groups in, in Europe and uh, it's been a great, great service mm. for them. So where can people buy your book? In a bookstore. Every good bookstore? Every it's good published bookstore. by New, New South, South Press. Press. Yes, you can, you can order it from New South Press or, or go in and, and buy a, a nice signed book. Some of them are signed in Sydney. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really fantastic to hear about this hidden history and um, I'm looking forward to reading the book. Uh, But before we go, we're going to glam slam you. Uh, This is the segment where we ask what's coming up in your diary. So what history stuff is on the horizon for Mandy Sale? On the 5th of November, I'm doing uh, a, a talk at Muse restaurant and wine bar and bookstore in Canberra which should be fun because there'll be wine involved. <laughs> uh, and books. And books. And um, on the 13th of December, I'm doing a talk at Wallara Library as well. So that's probably my diary for the next couple of months. Brilliant. You Talking can history. See Mandy in person. What about you, Anna Clark? Um, I am going to Sydney Open. Uh, me too. Yeah. We're both... Going. Both going. To Sydney Open. (laughs) On the 4th and 5th of November, Sydney Open is inviting everyone to come inside and see what's behind the facade of our heritage treasures that trace Sydney's beginnings. So on Saturday the 4th of November you can explore some of Sydney's most in-demand spaces and buildings, old and new, take tours with Sydney Living Museum's experts. And then on Sunday the 5th of November, you can make your own itinerary using their open access program. So I'm going to do both. Oh, uh, I mean, history tastic. I am very excited about going to the mortuary station, Ooh, which I've driven past a thousand times yeah. near Central Station and never actually been through the gates of. So that's 
I might come with you to that. That yeah. sounds fantastic. Yeah. A bit yeah. of a cemetery nut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. To find know, out I take photos of graves. Haven't you seen in the book? <laughs> <laughs> to find out more, head to sydneylivingmuseums.com.au slash sydneyopen. And that brings us to the end of our show. Yeah. For another week. Thank you very much, Mandy. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. This has been Glam City. If you want to hear more from us, head to the 2SCR website, which is, as you know, 2SCR.com, and search for us on our favourite podcast app. And you can also find us on Twitter. Are you on Twitter? No, I'm not. Oh, we're very good. You've escaped the um, dominion of the Twitter. The bandwagon of social media. But I am there as cap and gown, and Anna is... At Anna Hope Clark. Anna Hope Clark. Thank you once again, and see you next week. Glam out. Glam out.